Father God, like that last song just said, what we need to do is come to your altar today and eat of your food, your word, Father. And so I pray that we would do it like the psalm tells us to come to the altar of God, to God our exceeding joy, that we would come to you in search of the greatest and highest joy in the universe, namely your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And so I ask for my sake and for the sake of my friends today, Father, that you would um, remove me from the equation in as much as needed, Father, for your word to stand forth and um, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, commend it to our hearts so that we would see you with fresh eyes and magnify your name in great joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heaven, heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. You got it, Jed. Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that the light was good. <laughs> it was good. Um, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So this is the first day ever the first day. There wasn't a day before this day. It was, this was it. And this day is defined in the scriptures by one reality. One thing defines it in our text, and that is light. There's light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light and saw that it was good. And since that moment in time, everyone who has seen light in the physical world, completely agrees with God. They are on God's side with regard to light. Light is good. It's very good. Um, if you see the world right now, your seeing is because of light. Without light, we would not see the physical world. We would be blind to it. So light is good. And this is a universal truth. You know this to be true already. Dark is genu generally associated with bad things. And light is associated with good things. And I think like a day like this, this is not a normal October for the Pacific Northwest. This is glorious. There's a lot of light outside. People want to get outside into that. Um, so the goodness of light is, is clear. For example, when a child is afraid at night, no matter their personality, you parents know this to be true, or their background, or their culture, they will always, almost always at least, tell you they would rather have the light on than off. Now, why is this? Why is that the case? Well, it's because light is good. Light helps them see what's in the room rather than being surrounded by darkness and they don't know what's there. They'll never tell you, I'm afraid of the light, mommy or daddy, but they will tell you, I'm afraid of the dark. This is a universal truth that spans history, cultures, time, geography. 
that things like light is associated with things that are good and right, and darkness is often associated with things that are not good. Um, And so when Jesus, at the beginning of the New Testament, defines those who follow him as light, he calls them light, he is saying something fundamentally profound. Listen to Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is talking to the church. He's talking to, I mean, this is, for, this is before they are actually called the church, but he's talking to his disciples. These are people who followed him. That's what the church is, people who follow Jesus. And so for the last few weeks, this is the last of those few weeks, we've been asking this question, what is it to be the church? What does it mean to be the church of the living God? What does that look like? And uh, Scripture has held out a variety of pictures over the course of the last few weeks. Um, And today, that picture, the final one that we'll look at, is the picture of light. What does it mean for the church to be light? And this passage already tells us a lot about what it means. The first thing it tells us here is that the church being the light in the world means that it cannot be hidden. You should not put it under a basket, but you should set it on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that churches should have marketing campaigns or some kind of advertising to promulgate their brand. That's not what he's saying. The Bible never says that. Or to promulgate their name. Jesus explains exactly what he means when he says that they should not be hidden by using the words in the same way right here. So in the same way, I've lost it. Okay. There you go. There we go. Thank you. In the, I needed to see it for you guys to see it, I guess. In the same way, in other words, he's going to tell us now, when he says in the same way, how it is our light shines in this world. That's what he's going to say. And guess what? It isn't a marketing strategy. He says our light shines through good works, acts of Christian love, acts of service to others, not to ourselves. And that's what it looks like for the light that Jesus is talking about to shine. Radical acts of Christian love, compassion, and sacrificial generosity. It looks like giving your life for others, meaningfully doing that. And the second thing that we see from this text about light is that the purpose of shining the light isn't to draw attention to ourselves. That's not what it is. It's to draw attention to God. He says, our good works should bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. And this fact is made clear about a chapter later in Matthew 6 when Jesus actually says, actually don't practice your righteousness before others. If you do, you will get no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, 
Think about this. This sounds like a contradiction of terms to say in one chapter this and then to say not to do it in the next because um, they sound so alike. God wants us to think very hard about what this means. The difference here is that there is a way that you can do moral, ethical things that have zero reference to God's value and worth. Zero reference. And that's not what God is asking here, what Jesus is asking. Jesus is saying here our ge- that if our deeds do not point to God, they are pointing to us. No matter if we say that, no matter if we act like that, that's what's happening. God is not honored if they're not in reference to him. The most intrinsic aspect of being the light in the world that's in this passage is that the light is a reflection of God and not self-originating. That's the main difference between Matthew 5's showing your righteousness and Matthew 6, showing your righteousness. One's a reflection, one is self-originating. And that is a massive difference. Because to be honest, the world and all of the religions in the world don't think in these terms. They think about the, the deed itself. And to them, deeds are self-originating. You earn your value before God. You show you're a good person. You commend yourself before others. That's the very basis of what it means to do good works in the secular context. Whereas in Christianity and in the church, what makes deeds actually good isn't mainly the content of the action that is important, but it's whether or not it reflects the character of God. And the light he's talking about comes from God and is is reflected by those who are in fellowship with him. That's what it means to be the light of the world. And we see this all over the New Testament. For for example, 1 John 1 says this, this is John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is saying here, the heart of the message that he proclaims, the the center of what that is, is that God is light, which is a profound statement. God has no darkness in him whatsoever. He is perfectly light. He is the embodiment of of light, and that means that he's perfectly good in all of his ways. He's not only morally righteous, like ethically righteous, but God is never at fault. God doesn't follow a, a, a moral standard or moral code. He's not living up to a moral code. He is the moral code and the moral standard. That's who he is as God, and, and, and John is saying that real fellowship with God always leads us to walking in the light, not walking in the darkness, which is why he says here, you can't walk in the darkness and claim to have fellowship with God. It's impossible to do that. But if you do walk in the light, if you do walk in the light, we not only have fellowship with God, 
but we have fellowship with one another. That's what he's saying here. We have fellowship with each other, and he's describing here the church. He's describing the community of believers that have been united by walking in the light, by being in fellowship with God. That's what this is. In fact, in Revelation 1, the way that John describes the churches in the vision he sees is as lampstands that are giving off light. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church, all of us who walk in light. That's how we live. Now, what does this mean? How do I walk in light? It's one thing to say something that is very abstract in its concept. How do we do this? What does this look like? Well, Romans 13 describes it like this. Paul says in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I didn't share with you my notes. So I was wondering how you got that prayer. I know how, but it amazes me every time. Um, yeah, so, so he says, no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is saying that for the church, all of us, to walk in light means to cast off the works of darkness and to put on what he calls the armor of light. He refers to it here as, as waking up from our sleep. So the call for the Christian in this passage is to wake up and to put on Christ, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is this decisive and really dramatic shift of the soul of a human being, and it looks a lot like the difference between night and day. That's how stark the difference is, which is why the language is very apt. One moment you are gratifying the desires of your flesh, and the next you're refusing to make any provisions for it at all. You're not allowing it to get any, any, any provisions at all because you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get a, a kind of a sense of aggression from Paul's language here, almost as though this is a fight. Like, I mean, think about what he says here. He says we must cast off the works of darkness and take up not the shirt or tunic of light, but the armor, the armor of light. Those are fighting words. That's, that, the language is not intended to be casual. It's not intended to be uh, an easy transition. He's talking about a battle. He's talking about a fight, a war against not just sinful actions alone, but the way he describes it here at the end of this text is against one's own nature. He says, make no provisions for the flesh. Put on Christ-like armor it is a declaration of war against not just sin in our lives, but the very nature that brings about it, the broken inclinations we have. And he lists a bunch of things here. He lists orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. And some of these definitely seem strange in our context, uh, especially in the church. Um, but here's the deal about all of these things. 
the root of all of them is the exact same. They are desires that are contrary to the character of God and therefore sin. All of them stem from this kind of dark slavery that we have to our own selfish desires, what we feel is right for ourselves. And that is the essence of what sin is. It's a departure from from trusting in God's provision and what he's called us into. It's embracing whatever we desire to. And Paul says that the church is called to put on the armor of Christ because night is far gone. Love that line. And day is at hand. So Paul, in saying this, is, I think, reaching back into Genesis 1. (laughs) And he's connecting light with day. In other words, the fact that in the Bible, the very first day begins with evening and ends with morning isn't just a physical kind of description. It's way more than that because that's the exact flow that all of redemptive history has progressed. Night is over. We are coming towards dawn. Day is at hand. The cross of of Christ, which John said earlier, has cleansed us from all sin makes us, everyone who trusts in Jesus, belong to the day. We belong to the light. Night has no sway over us anymore, no matter what it feels like sometimes, some days. Night has no more sway. And this, this concept of belonging to the day, of actually belonging to the day, like we are from the day, is woven throughout all of the New Testament. Um, for example, here's, here's one text, First Corinthians, First Thessalonians 5. Paul is talking to the church, and he says this, You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul calls us here children of light, children of the day. This is the, he uses the same language in Ephesians 5. He actually has a long, lengthy passage about this in Ephesians 5. And and, in both this text and Ephesians 5, he connects this with being a child of the day, not sleeping. This is what it looks like. You don't sleep You're not a a child of the night, you're a child of the day. To sleep or to be drunk in the way that he's depicting it here is to to walk in darkness. That's what it is. It's to be controlled and driven by your own desires. And it is really, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's, it's slavery to your own desire. It's slavery to yourself. And um, the way he describes it here, um, belonging to the day, is he describes it in a similar way as putting on the armor of light from Romans 13. He says, uh, the armor that you put on here is faith and love and the hope of salvation. That's what you put on. That's the armor that you put on. And the reason he goes back to this armor analogy, I think, is because he just wants to, he wants to make sure we recognize this is going to be war, that to be the light in the world as Christ has called us to be will be a war. It will be a lifelong battle. 
But here's the deal, and this is very important. It is not a battle against other people. It is never a battle against other people. To be the light of the world in these texts is to wage war against everything in us that would do harm to other people by obscuring and concealing the worth of the glory of God from others. That's what it means. That's the war that we're fighting here. That's the battle. The main problem in the, in the Christian life, and I think we can get confused by this, the main problem in, in the Christian life is that we think there's problems out here that are great, greater. But the main problem in the Christian life isn't outside of us. The main problem, the main challenge, the main fight in the Christian life is a battle inside. It is against the constant pull of our flesh towards things to appease ourself and, and uh, to bring us really back into the night. And to be the light of the world is to, is to declare war on that selfishness. And the slavery, the slavery that we have to ourself and to, to, to fight this together as the church now, there's a lot of different ways the Bible describes how this fight will play out. I'm going to give you one here because it connects with the concept of being a light. Philippians 2:14. Paul tells us, "Do all things, this is amazing, all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world. Think about what he's saying here. <clears throat> do all things. Do all things. Not just one thing. Not just a lot of things. He says all things without grumbling or disputing. I can barely get through breakfast without doing these things. I don't know about you. Some people are like, I have no problem at all. Now, I, this is a struggle for me. He says all things, yet he says that we do this for a reason. There's a reason we do this, that we would be blameless and innocent, that we would look like our Father in heaven without blemish in the midst of a generation of crooked, twisted, broken views of reality and the world. This is how we shine. This is how we are a light in the world. Because, and, and, and this is a battle. I didn't say it explicitly. Not grumbling and complaining is a battle for me every day. It's so easy to downshift into grumbling. It's so easy to downshift into complaining about things that don't go my way. And not disputing or arguing for our own perspective is a fight. It's a fight against our own sinful nature. And, and when by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the only way this battle can be waged, when we fight and when we win, then we shine as lights in this world. That's what it looks like to shine. And that's what the church is called to look like in the midst of, of immense darkness and brokenness in our culture and in our city, in our community. This is how we shine. But here's the deal, and this is the question really that, that hangs over everything I want to talk about today. Um, 
We have not yet shown how it is that good works in and of themselves lead people to glorify God. Because that's what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 5, right? Do your good works before others so that they would glorify God. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how in the world does that happen? How in the world does that happen? Think about it for a second. There's a lot of philanthropic good I can do in this world that anyone else with a pulse can do, whether they believe in God or not. How does the good that a Christian does point to God? Christians may give a ton of money. They may volunteer. They may serve. But anybody without the gospel can do that. Anybody who doesn't care at all about God can do those things. So how does Christ see Matthew 5 as possible in our lives, especially in Seattle in 2019? This is a tough context. How could anything I would do at my day job, I guess, at Microsoft, how could anything I do lead others to glorify God? How does that happen? If that's the goal, if, that, if, 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 if that's the result, that the, the goal that Jesus has for our good works, how does that happen? It, it, it's critical that it does. How does it happen? Um, and this is, I mean, think through it. This is challenging in our current context. Doing good things in our culture now and even believing certain things about morality, about ethics, about family, about marriage, about an entire gamut of things, no matter how graciously and lovingly we engage those contexts and subjects, we should engage them graciously, we should engage them lovingly, but no matter how that happens, it doesn't necessarily lead people to glorify God. In fact, it could lead them to do the opposite. And so this is a huge question. What is it about shining our light leads people to glorify our Father in heaven? And I think the answer is huge. And I think it, it, it is in what it, it looks like to actually fight our sin. It is in what it looks like to put on Christ. And the answer is connected to how we get the light in the first place. John 8 tells us how this happens. This is Jesus. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So he's saying something we've already seen in a few other passages. We are not self-originating light. That's not who we are. Our light has a source, and the source of our light's name is Jesus Christ. And he says here how we get it. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but rather they will have the light of life. And so the source of this light is Jesus, and we receive it by following in his footsteps, doing what he did. And John in this book, prior in John 1 and really throughout the book of John, explains what it looks like to follow Jesus. You follow Jesus when you receive him and his work in the gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to receive Jesus Christ and the good news. To be his disciple is to embrace him and all of the work that he did on the cross in our place, for our stead. 
And we know what this is. This is called saving faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. Jesus says here that it's in that faith, that receiving of Jesus, that we have the light of life. Now, there's one passage. There's, there's a variety of passages that do this. But there's one passage, I think, that most effectively uh, communicates how that light breaks into the heart of a human being and how it transforms them so that they walk in light. And this text is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. I'd love for you to see this in the text. It'll be on the screen, but verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Paul is talking about his preaching of the gospel. He says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This passage was, was actually the focus of uh, the weight and glory study that we just did a, a few weeks ago, um, and it is fresh in my mind. Paul is, is saying that unbelievers here are blind and they're perishing. They are dying. That's verses 3 and 4. There's the same people. Those who are perishing are those who are blind. They are blinded by the God of this world. They're blinded by Satan. And while their eyes, their physical eyes, can see perfectly fine, they cannot see what he calls the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They can't see it. He also calls it in verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is the same thing. He's describing them in two different ways. And what it is, is this. It is the reality of Jesus Christ in the gospel, what he did for us, as the apex and the summit and the pinnacle of God's glory. That's what he's describing here. And he uses one word to, to depict it, light. Light. And he says, what we proclaim isn't ourselves. We're not about us. We are not about us. We are about Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul is all about Jesus. He's all about this light. But Paul wasn't always like this. He wasn't. In fact, much of his life, he hated Jesus and did everything he could to eradicate Jesus' name and his following from first century Palestine. He hated this light until verse 6 happened to him. When verse 6 happened to him, everything changed for Paul. Look, look how he describes it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is a re reference to Genesis 1, right? Darkness becoming light. Paul says, 
God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is Paul describing his conversion experience. This is what it looks like to transition from darkness into light. This reality. It was as though God looked into the darkness of Paul's heart and said, let there be light. And there was light. And in that moment, Jesus of Nazareth goes from an enemy of Paul's to Lord. He goes from being hated by Paul to being hallowed by Paul. And in fact, Paul would be willing to die for Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, later on in this book, he enumerates dozens of different ways that he suffered for the sake of Christ. Not to, give him, not to earn a pat on the back. He's not interested in that. He wants to show one thing, how valuable Jesus is to him. Jesus is infinitely valuable to Paul. And we see that in the next verse after this passage, verse 7. Listen to what he says here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now think about what Paul's saying here. He's just talked about his conversion experience, what it meant for him to become a Christian and, and, and for Jesus to go from an enemy to being his Lord. And he's saying that there's a treasure now. There's a treasure in a jar. He's the jar. We know that much. Paul's frail. Paul's weak. He's, he's getting beaten up for the gospel. He's being stoned. He's being beaten for the sake of Christ. But he says there's a treasure inside this battered jar. And I want you to know about it. What is the treasure? What is the treasure? The treasure is the light. That's the treasure of verse 4 and verse 6. The light of the gospel is the same light that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. It's the same reality. The thing which, according to Paul here, shows the surpassing power and greatness of God isn't owing to anything inside of him. It isn't self-originating. It is, it is, he's a, a jar of clay. And one day he's going to die. He's going to be shattered. What gives light to the surpassing power of God is the treasure that is inside of him. It's this light. It's called the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the knowledge of what he has accomplished on the cross. It's the gospel. That's what this is. So the, the light here, just, just to be clear, it isn't just facts about Jesus' life. It does involve facts. We need to know facts about who Jesus is. This light that broke in on Paul's heart is the very glory of God in Christ Jesus, experienced by Paul when he receives the gospel into his heart by the power of God, by the grace of God. God said into Paul's heart, let there be light. And Paul, who had walked his entire life in darkness, suddenly sees the unparalleled worth and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, and it changes everything for him. His entire world is turned upside down. This light is the kind of treasure that you would give everything for. 
That's what Paul believes. That's what he did. Paul saw in the gospel something more valuable, something more beautiful than anything else in the world, and that something is Jesus Christ. And we know this to be true because of what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. That's the kingdom of heaven from Jesus' own mouth. And that man who, who buys that field to have that treasure spends the rest of his life exalting the glory of that treasure. He lets that light, the, the light of the treasure, shine before others. This is the light of the gospel. This is the, the worth of Jesus as it is experienced in what he accomplished on the cross for us. And let me just tell you, there's nothing like him in the world. There's nothing like Jesus in the world. Every action and every word of ours in pursuit of holiness and every effort that we have to love others sacrificially must have Jesus as central. He must be central to us. He is the very reason for all of those things. The beauty and worth of Jesus when Christ is, is lifted high in our lives, is what it looks like to shine. It's what it looks like to shine like, like he says to do here. We are reflecting his glory, and that is why we exist. That's why the church exists. That's why the church is to be this light. And it is only through the gospel that this can happen. We see the brilliance and the radiance and the resplendent glory of Jesus in him dying for undeserving sinners. It is a radical thing for the God of the universe to do that for people who have not earned a single drop of it. So this light isn't merely doing good things. It's not merely doing ethical and moral things. It's not. It is about Christ. It's about seeing the king in his beauty and becoming like what we see. And C.S. Lewis knew this very well. C.S. Lewis had said a lot about morality, and some of them are amazing things. But one quote to me stands out above all others, and I want to I give that to you now. Listen to this quote. Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness, as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not even thinking of it because they're too busy looking at the source from which it comes. This is what Christianity is. This is Christianity. This is the light. This is the glory of Jesus Christ that grips the soul of a man. It is a joy so beautiful, so enrapturing and massive that it's worth giving up everything for. Our own preferences, what we want, what our self desires, it's worth giving up everything. And as we look to him, 
and embrace him as our treasure, we become like him. We are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's 2 Corinthians 3. This is what it is. This is what it means to embrace the light, to reflect it. This is what it means to be the church, to be the church and to love others sacrificially through the glory of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, <clears throat> we need to do this. I mean, it's, uh, we've been talking a lot about what the church looks like and how the church acts and functions. This is massive. This is the one that, that's all over the New Testament. Um, we need to show Jesus' worth in everything we say, think, and do in our lives. That's what we that's how we live. The, the light is so beautiful that it's worth making sacrifices for to do that. And the reason um, is because Jesus actually is this worthy. If we don't think that he's this worthy, then we won't show this light. And if we're not showing this light, it's probably a failure to see him in his worth. There's a, there's a hang up somewhere there. And we need to gaze deeper into who he is. Um, Every true act of goodness in the heart of a Christian rises or falls on the worth of Jesus, on his beauty, on not only what he purchased for us through the cross, but on experiencing him in his glory and his beauty and his worth. Um, 1 Peter 2, 9 tells us this very thing. Listen to Peter's words here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we all those things? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The reason we are anything, any of those things in that list, and those are awesome, awesome things. The reason we are, according to Peter, is that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. That's why we are those things. That's why we're the church. Shining the light of Jesus isn't primarily about morality or about ethics or about doing good. Those are important, but that's not the main point. It's proclaiming his worth in the doing of those things. It's holding him out as our treasure because we are gripped like C.S. Lewis said, by a treasure from another country. He has hold of our soul and our affections, and so we are willing to give our lives in the service of others. We're willing to lay down our lives to help, care, love, and, and, and bring others into the same light that we experienced here. We're going to worship in a few moments through communion, the Lord's Supper, and... Um, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I invite you to participate. And uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, is the act of remembering the gospel. It's the act of really thinking about this light that we've been talking about and embracing it anew every single time we participate in communion. And, and today, as we think about this, think about how extraordinary it was for Christ Jesus, though he was Though he is equal with God, condescended from his radiance, glory, beauty to be nailed on a tree and punished for our sake, 
Like that's what the gospel is. And he did that so that we could have the light. He did that so we could be embraced by the light of his glory. The cross was the price he paid for us to have that light forever. That's how much it cost him. Because without it, we would be separated from him forever. So as today, as we consider the light, as we think about it and participate in communion, I would ask that, that every one of us, myself included, especially me, um, think about and contemplate the worth of Jesus in the gospel for me. Don't think about other people. Don't think about him giving himself for the world, though he did. Think about what it meant for him to give himself for you. That's what Galatians 2 tells us he did. And consider that that beauty, the glory of Jesus in considering that is what brings us to do the deeds that we need to do to shine the light that Matthew 5 calls us to shine. It isn't about keeping a checklist. It isn't. It's not about pursuing some sort of standard of ethical conduct. It's about being in love with Jesus Christ. That's the center of this. That's the middle of this. It's about seeing him as the treasure that he really is. The light we shine here isn't simply a good deed or a kind act. The light we shine here is being overwhelmed by the reality of who Jesus Christ is in the gospel. All that he is for us in the gospel, which is the root of every ounce of truly sacrificial love that you will ever produce. That's where it comes from. It flows from the cross through Jesus to us. And we live in a, a beautiful city, but a city that is spiritually dark and a planet that is spiritually dark. And the light of Matthew 5, the design for that is to shine brightly. It's not empty morality. It's not rule keeping. It is the kind of life that is rooted in the greatest joy in the universe. And that joy's name is Jesus. Let's pray for this. Father God, to talk about these realities is humbling. And I know that in my, my words and my communication, I know that I, I fail to actually adequately communicate your greatness. I can't. And we can barely begin to even conceive of how beautiful and how worthy Jesus Christ is. How awesome it was that the God of the universe took on human flesh, infiltrated the darkness of our world, and died for it to become light. That is an awesome thing. It did not need to be that way. And what we need, Father God, more than anything else, is your presence to be here with us. And the miracle that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4 to break into our hearts, all of us, whether we've received the gospel or not, to break into our hearts anew. And for you to say, Father God, as you did at the beginning of creation, let there be light in our souls, in the darkest parts of our being imaginable. We know what they are, Father, shine in them. And help us to see you as the treasure that you are, 
and in seeing you that way, to be willing to give our lives for the sake of others, to be, giving, to be willing to give everything we can to love and care for the people around us, to meet their physical needs, to meet their spiritual needs, Father God. Help us do this. Help us to this end, Father, for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy in your glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.